Greetings, everybody. It's Alex Simmons coming to you from Europe, actually, uh, with this, uh, what would you call this, uh, this exciting, impromptu, tell-the-damn-story episode. Unfortunately, Chris is not here with me in Europe. He's back in the United States holding down the fort. And Tim Fielder, who you hear about, was one of the co-creators of Tell the Damn Story, is out there either in New York working on a major illustrations project or might even be traveling through the United States right now on another speaking tour. So... So, I'm here in Europe, and I had a chance to go to the Helsinki Comic Center and speak with some of the members and really get a look at what is uh, coming to be, in my mind and my experience, a fairly exciting movement of comic centers, cultural centers, showing up in different cities and different countries. So, here we are. Uh, this is already pre-recorded. I'm just doing this intro right now to let you know Chris is not going to be here for this one, and I miss him, I miss him, I miss him, but we'll see how that goes. Uh, but let me get started on at least the first half of this interview with members of the Helsinki Comic Center here in Helsinki, Finland. Okay, um, I am recording here, and the you're going to tell me the name of the place again. What was it, the name of this center? The Comic Center of Helsinki. Yes, and it's called the Comic Center of Helsinki because I'm in Helsinki, Finland, which is not something that happens very often, so I figured let me take advantage of the fact. I'm here with two wonderful people who are nice enough to meet me in um, the center of town and bring me here. Uh, the first is... Einar Elmgren. I'm a historian and comic artist. Uh-huh. And... Rami Rautkorpi. I'm a comics translator and comics artist. All right, so um, these two wonderful people, as I said, met me here, and they brought me to the Comic Center, uh, and this was arranged through uh, a friend of mine named Anna, who's a comic artist in Moscow, and Anna knows people here, and that's just to say that the comic world is much larger than most of you think. It is truly global, and not just because DC sells in India. So um, what I wanted to do while I'm here is, A, learn a bit more about this Comic Center, you know, and how it came about, and what you think would be interesting to share about it, and then I want to learn a little bit more about you guys. And, as I've said a couple of times, you can also ask me questions. You know, please, let's keep this uh, sort of an exchange, you know, while I'm here. So, who wants to start first? Tell me something about the Comic Center. Well, the Comic Center is really the uh, physical mani manifestation of the Comic Society of Finland, which has been operating for decades uh, and... Uh, has organized the annual Helsinki Comics Festival, but didn't really have a physical headquarters that people could visit until 10 years ago. It was established in 2008, the original uh, comic center, in a location uh, very near to where it is now, but it has moved two times since, and now we're here, here in Kallio, Helsinki. And you said the, the fin, Finland Comics Festival, how, you said decades, about how long? I mean, are we talking three decades, four, five? Four, four decades. Four, so say. 40 years. Yeah. Wow, okay, that, that is something. And, and what is your position here with the Comic Center? I'm the vice chair of the board of the Comic Society, so I'm one of the people who supervise and, and make decisions on a high level. And here at the Comic Center, we have uh, the salaried employees who take care of the day-to-day -day business. Okay. And just to get a little balance here, mm -hmm. what else happens here at the center? Obviously, there's, there are comics, but what else goes on here? There are workshops, there are courses organized both for adults and children and in different topics, like one course which is 
going to be organized soon is about comics journalism. So that's an interesting topic, how to use comics as a journalistic medium. So you mean in the case of either uh, uh, personal biographies uh, or, or even like, what was it, I believe the graphic novel The Photographer? which is, uh, um, is fiction and non-fiction material about a photographer in the uh, Middle East. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, something of that sort, uh, documentary comics, mm -hmm. uh, which can express, uh, uh, well, for example, traumatic events in a different way than, than film or mm -hmm. other types of documentation. So it's, it's a challenge, of course. How do you manage that without distorting and... Uh, yeah. yeah, without stereotyping. I've, I've done that for years in terms of work with uh, young people in distressed situations. Uh, so aside from underserved communities that I've worked with and done comics workshops and certain schools that work with children sort of in their last opportunities at school or educational system, I've also gone into incarceration facilities for teenagers and worked with them there. And yes, it is a different challenge because there's already a certain amount of, of resistance, either due to the extreme hardships they've endured or to a persona that they've taken on that they don't want to shed in front of their peers. And sometimes just because, you know, they don't believe in it. They don't believe in themselves. They don't believe in anything other than what they know or what they've known up to that point. So, yes, it, it is a challenge. And, and also, certainly, when you, when you use comics in in a therapeutic manner, you know, and none of us, I'm going to make an assumption here, none of us are therapists. So sometimes what comes out and you see that this is reflecting a difficulty that may be beyond our ability is then what do you do? You know, what do you do with that, that awareness? You know, do you report it? Do you ask the artist to seek help or do you just observe and, and, and sort of support them expressing it through the art and see if that in and of, in and of itself is useful. But yes, it's, it's quite a challenge, but that's, that's great. Now, how long have you been doing workshops and things here, either one of you? Um, I've actually not been teaching here, but I've used comics as a teaching method at university. So, what, uh, what university? Uh, at Helsinki University. Um, I was teaching in a master's oh, program oh. called Culture and Communication, a special cor course about uh, ideology and the public sphere. Well, that sounds very vague. <laughs> so I took the opportunity to, to have an assignment where the students, who were all master's students, were actually uh, supposed to draw a four-panel comic using any any kind of method. They could use collage even if they were not confident in their drawing mm -hmm. abilities. And to convey a message and try to convince the reader, the assumed audience. So that was really interesting because it forced the master students to think outside the box and not use, well, uh, text but images mm -hmm. and uh, perhaps get a view of... Because sometimes people treat images oh, as something magic you need talent to create images, and then it's almost real, so people react to propaganda images very strongly and emotionally. Mm. But what happens when you actually experience creating images yourself and uh, informing or manipulating your audience? I think that gives some power to, uh, to people to see that this is actually also uh, a, a way of conveying ideas. You have to take it with a grain of salt. I think it also makes people aware of the fact, you use the word manipulation. Um, I teach screenwriting at the New York Film Academy, and I often tell my students, we manipulate people. 
you know, how you put together a story. You want certain reactions to come at certain times from your audience. So you are, in effect, manipulating them. You don't have to see it as a bad thing, unless it depends on the kind of film or stuff that you're doing. But ultimately, yes, you're trying to elicit specific reactions at specific times. And that means you're manipulating. And I think when people become more aware of the fact that that can be done, it also makes them a little bit more watchful in terms of the material that they're ingesting. So you, you had said that um, some of these programs are beyond this, this uh, particular location. Where are they? Yeah, so um, teaching courses and workshops has been a part of the Comic Center's mission for all of the decade of its existence. And the goal has been actually pretty ambitious to have a... Uh, a corpus of, of teaching that, that uh, matches the requirements of art education in Finland. And, and the people who work here at Comic Center design the coursework, and we have uh, uh, teachers who are hired to do the teaching at schools, at libraries, and, and activity centers, uh, not only in the Helsinki metropolitan area, but in other cities in Finland. But, but the, the actual mission of using uh, comics as a tool of education goes back further than the comic center. The, the society has, for example, uh, collaborated with uh, the World Comics Initiative, which is all about going to developing countries and, and giving people the tools to tell stories about their own lives mm. through comics, which, which when, when you realize the, the potential of the medium, it's, it's much easier to approach than trying to express yourself through prose. Uh, in, in principle, everyone can draw. It's all about just tearing down those, those inhibitions about, about uh, having to uh, possess a certain level of proficiency in drawing. Yeah. You know, drawing like so-and-so. Well, so-and-so's been drawing for 35 years. You know? so, <laughs> there, there's, a, there's something to be said for practice. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that because some years ago I was introduced to an exhibit at the Harlem Studio, the Studio Museum of Harlem, rather, in uh, New York City, and it was African comics. So it was comics actually produced by African artists in Africa. And whereas I was aware that they existed, what I, I found interesting was how that exhibit came to the Studio Museum. It did not come through uh, a Harlem to Africa connection or a black person to black person connection. It came about through an organization in Italy looking for a medium through which they could show Italians the African experience because a lot of Africans were migrating to Italy and there was a lot of shall we say, rough edges, you know, the, the cultures were clashing in, in certain ways in certain localities, and they were looking for something they could use to sort of become the bridge, uh, you know, establish some sort of uh, communication. And in f going to Africa, I think they initially went there thinking they would find it in music or whatever, and they found that these comics were being made all over Africa, but there was no central publishers, no central distribution center. And so they started bringing these back and presenting them to the Italian people and then eventually bringing some of the artists over. And that established, again, some sort of a platform for dialogue to solve some of the social problems they were dealing with. But then that also made them aware that this was an exhibit that should travel and, and be seen by others. Uh, there's a longer story behind that, but I think that speaks to what you're talking about. Uh, I know I, in growing up, I read a lot of... French 
comics and graphic novels before I discovered um, some of the Italians and some of the others. And, and I was exposed to Hershey's Adventures of Tintin, both as an animated show, because it existed back in the 60s, and then the books, and then that led me to Asterix, you know, the Gaul, and then I started to see not a similarity in style, because you were talking also about silent proficiency, not a similarity in style in the art, or, but Mexican comics, because I had a lot of Hispanic friends, mm -hmm. and so they had their families, their fathers, mothers had these Mexican or Spanish comics. And I'm looking and I'm going, wow, you know, you got comics here and comics in America. This, so I got very excited about that. And that was another way of, of my friends who were into comics when we were 13 and 12, realizing that the world was bigger than our, our neighborhood, or our community, you know, or our small circle of friends. So that's, you know, I think comics are absolutely what you're saying. It's, it's an open door to communication and to uh, expressing for oneself, but also helping others get some sense of who you are and where you're coming from. And again, where are those similarities? Because these days they seem to be talking about differences more than anything else. Um, so now both of you are artists, and, and I would love to get a little bit more insight into that. So again, shifting, uh, will you tell me a little something about your, your self you know, as an artist. Yeah, well, I've been drawing comics most of my life, so I'm essentially self-taught. But uh, since I started studying history, um, comics became an outlet for the kind of stories I could not tell as a researcher. So I've been in become more and more interested in historical topics, uh, including... Um, well, one of the recent stories I made for an anthology about Finnish Civil War in 1918 mm. uh, was based on... a uh, an actual narrative of a woman who participated uh, in the civil war and, and she was uh, uh, a soldier so uh, this was really difficult to do how to express a story in comics where I did not believe that everything she described had actually happened <laughs> but I would I still wanted to do her story justice because mm -hmm. it was not my place to be the historian who or to rewrite history yeah yeah, yeah. so possible history so her experiences had to be be appreciated even though and that's where the tone comic medium is so valuable because you can make the reader aware of the subjectivity that this is this person's uh, personal experience, what her memories, and not perhaps the uh, artist's uh, ideas. Mm -hmm. So you can have work with different levels in the comic storytelling. Uh, you you yeah. said you were, you're self-taught. I, I do want to come back to what you were talking about in a moment, but you said you were self-taught. So uh, what medium, what do you find uh, you use most in order to do your comics? Have you work in color, black and white, pen, pen, pencil? Let's try it again. Pen, pencil, paint. You know. Yeah, I think I'm pretty old-fashioned in the old adventure comics tradition. I always liked the pen, ink, black and white, strong shadows, mm. that sort of thing, and the brush, brush work. That's oh. really something I want to yeah. develop further. So, for example, Will Eisner was oh. a great discovery. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, I met him. Yeah. Yes, yeah. great man. Great yeah. man. Yeah. yeah. It's funny because he's he, a lot of us in the industry and in, in the states treat him like he was you know, everybody's great grandfather. You know, it's like, just so many different artists of so many different backgrounds and styles who will refer to Will Eisner's work, either his illustrative work 
or specifically his work with the, with the spirit or his graphic novels like you know, Contract with God, where that's a, you know, a, a, has nothing to do with superheroes. It has to do with the story about the human existence. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think there's something about that man that's left his mark, like Jack Kirby's left his mark that seems to transcend generations. And, and as I said, art styles. So, all right, so you, you work in, in certain medium that you're, you favor, and do you have any material out already that you've published or self-published? or? Yeah, I have a self-published adventure story, both online and printed, uh, called Golden Bird. It's an adventure story. Golden set. Bird? Bird. Oh, bird. 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 Yeah. <laughs> okay. Chirp, chirp. Okay. Yeah. Golden bird. Yes. Yeah. So it's set in the early 20s in the Mediterranean with a clash between different cultures and ideologies. So that's more like a, I'm playing around with history. It's not we'll, we'll, so. We'll, we'll, I'm going to get copies or something out later. So, folks, there'll be some sort of you know sample of it online. Yeah, yeah. And you, my good sir. Yeah, um, so my background is very much in the American mainstream comics fandom. So uh, I've been a comics collector for most of my life. And uh, in the early 2000s, I think it was 2002, I started uh, translating the Finnish Spider-Man or Hamakimies magazine. It's easy for you to say. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So I've been translating that uh, ever since. Uh, The the sort of Finnish language superhero market has dwindled all the time, and right now it's the only monthly uh, superhero magazine on the newsstands. But uh, I'd I'd like to think it's still going strong. But but that is that is the genre of comics that I felt uh, was closest to my heart. I've, I've uh, obviously, like most Finns, I've read Donald Duck and Asterix and Lucky Loop when I was a kid, and and um, I've uh, uh, read manga and, and other comics from Europe and so on, but I, uh, I keep coming back to the American superhero. And uh, I have also published a uh, album of comics myself. Uh, it was written by a friend of mine, Otto Sinisalo, a, a former chairman of the Comic Society. And uh, that is very much a sort of future dystopia uh, set in the 30th, 30th century, uh, possible future of mankind. And, and uh, I, I think it is is an expression of of the sort of shared uh, uh, comics influences of 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 mine and Otto's. So so there's very much Warren Ellis and and Brian Hitch there. Oh. And, uh, um, that so that that was one album. It's it's coming up on seven years ago. I've been working on the sequel all this time, and I I hope to actually. Uh, get ink to paper some someday this year, and and my preferred medium is is also pen and ink and brush. The the brush is is a uh, demanding tool, but I I hope to master it it someday. And and uh, I would say Joe Kubert is my my personal hero mm. in in terms of brush work. I I I, I hope to have half as much uh, skill with the brush someday. Well, I will tell Adam you said that. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Kubert School, um, there's a number of people I know who either graduated from there or have spoken there. And a friend of mine who's an artist I work with on Archie Comics, uh, Fernando Varese, teaches there and has for about I don't know, 15, 16 years. You know, he was a student there himself. So, yeah, there's a lot of the... Q 
Hubert influence out there in the world, you know, either either because they love his work or they've been taught at his school, you know, that's exactly. You had, you had said um, earlier about um, the, the whether or not the woman's uh, memoirs were mm. exaggerated in some way, shape, or form. And it's funny, because on the ship that I'm traveling on, there was a, a presentation done by, and I do not remember the woman's first name, J.J. Abrams' father. <clears throat> so the filmmaker's father was on the ship doing a presentation. Yes, he's still there. And he did it on fact or fiction. He showed scenes from specific movies, like Dunkirk, and uh, oh, Not a Beautiful Mind, but another film that's similar to that. And what he was saying, he then would talk to the audience and say, okay, here's a certain scene. Oh, well, uh, Ch Churchill, Winston Churchill. Mm -hmm. They'll say, here's a specific scene, fact or fiction. Do you think this really happened, or do you think the movie's done? And, you know, audience would vote. And what he explained was, and, and as storytellers, we know this, but again, to, to the lay audience, you know, Hollywood does take liberties. Hollywood film industry, storytellers do take liberties at times. None of us were with John Adams or any of the founding fathers of America, and yet you can write something like 1776 or, you know, John Adams. You can do a biopic about these people. And how do you know what they said? So at a certain point, you're going to do a certain amount of research, and then you're going to go, okay, I believe this is how it probably went. But then there are times when you do take even greater poetic license for the sake of drama, you know, because you are not doing a documentary, you're doing a piece of entertainment, you know, and it's meant to entertain, it's meant to compel. So sometimes, yeah, they will add scenes. So like there were there were scenes, and uh, I think it was in Dunkirk. There's a scene that was added, where the the Allies are actually being fired upon by German soldiers in this particular town that they're entering, and in actuality, the Germans had vacated that property weeks before the soldiers ever got there. So they said, you know, it's but it was it was a good film. It's a great scene. You know, it's great. It needed that, right? So I, you know, it's possible that the woman whose whose memoirs you were using as a reference mm. might have made herself or someone else seem a little bit bigger than life, or it's also possible that it happened, but you know, you have no way of knowing so so forth, so you have to make that call. Mm -hmm. And I, I think sometimes it really is about understanding or, or determining how genuine you want to be. You know, if you, if you indicate that something is absolutely true to fact, then you better make sure it's true to fact. But if you're doing a piece of fiction based on then, yeah, I mean, we should all expect that there are going to be some liberties taken for, again, visual or dramatic effect or appeal or comedic appeal, depending on what you're going for. Greetings, everybody. It's Alex Simmons coming to you from Europe, actually, uh, with this, uh, what would you call this, uh, this exciting, impromptu, tell-the-damn-story episode. Unfortunately, Chris is not here with me in Europe. He's back in the United States holding down the fort. And Tim Fielder, who you hear about and was one of the co-creators of Tell the Damn Story, is out there either in New York working on a major illustrations project or might even be traveling through the United States right now on another speaking tour. So, so I'm here in Europe, and I had a chance to go to the Helsinki Comic Center and speak with some of the members and really get a look at what is uh, coming to be, in my mind and my experience, a fairly exciting movement of comic centers, cultural centers, showing up in different cities and different countries. So 
Here we are. Uh, this is already pre-recorded. I'm just doing this intro right now to let you know. Chris is not going to be here for this one, and I miss him, I miss him, I miss him, but we'll see how that goes. Uh, but let me get started on at least the first half of this interview with members of the Helsinki Comic Center here in Helsinki, Finland. Okay, um, I am recording here, and the you're going to tell me the name of the place again. What was it, the name of this center? The Comic Center of Helsinki. Yes, and it's called the Comic Center of Helsinki because I'm in Helsinki, Finland, yeah, which is not something that happens very often, so I figured let me take advantage of the fact. I'm here with two wonderful people who are nice enough to meet me in um, the center of town and bring me here. Uh, the first is... Ainur Elmgren. I'm a historian and comic artist. Uh-huh, and... Rami Rautkorpi. I'm a comics translator and comics artist. All right. So um, these two wonderful people, as I said, met me here, and they brought me to the Comic Center, uh, and this was arranged through uh, a friend of mine named Anna, who's a comic artist in Moscow, and Anna knows people here, and that's just to say that the comic world is much larger than most of you think. It is truly global, and not just because DC sells in India. So um, what I wanted to do while I'm here is, A, learn a bit more about this Comic Center, you know, and how it came about, and what you think would be interesting to share about it. And then I want to learn a little bit more about you guys. And, as I've said a couple of times, you can also ask me questions. You know, please, let's keep this uh, sort of an exchange, you know, while I'm here. So, who wants to start first? Tell me something about the Comic Center. Well, the Comic Center is really the uh, physical manifestation of the Comic Society of Finland, which has been operating for decades uh, and... Uh, has organized the annual Helsinki Comics Festival, but didn't really have a physical headquarters that people could visit until 10 years ago. It was established in 2008, the original uh, comic center, in a location uh, very near to where it is now, but it has moved two times since, and now we're here, here in Kallio, Helsinki. And you said the the fin, Finland Comics Festival. How you said decades? About how long? I mean, are we talking three decades, four, five, four, four decades. Four, so say. forty years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, that, that is something. And and what is your position here with the Comic Center? I'm the vice chair of the board of the Comic Society. So I'm one of the people who supervise and and make decisions on a high level and here at the comic center we have uh, the salaried employees who take care of the day-to-day business okay and just to get a little balance here Mm -hmm. what else happens here at the center obviously there's there are comics but what else goes on here there are workshops there are courses organized both for adults and children and in different topics like one course which is going to be organized soon is about comics journalism. So that's an interesting topic, how to use comics as a journalistic medium. So you mean in the case of either uh, uh, personal biographies uh, or, or even like, what was it, I believe the graphic novel The Photographer, which is, uh, um, is fiction and non-fiction material about a photographer in the uh, Middle East? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, something so, of that sort, uh, documentary comics, mm-hmm. uh, which can express, uh, uh, well, for example, traumatic events in a different way than, than film or mm-hmm. other types of documentation. So it's, it's a challenge, of course. How do you manage that without distorting and uh, 
Yeah. yeah, without stereotyping. I've, I've done that for years in terms of work with uh, young people in distress situations. Uh, so aside from underserved communities that I've worked with and done comics workshops and certain schools that work with children sort of in their last opportunities at school or educational system, I've also gone into incarceration facilities for teenagers and worked with them there. And yes, it is a different challenge because there's already a certain amount of, of resistance, either due to the extreme hardships they've endured or to a persona that they've taken on that they don't want to shed in front of their peers. And sometimes just because, you know, they don't believe in it. They don't believe in themselves. They don't believe in anything other than what they know or what they've known up to that point. So, yes, it, it is a challenge. And, and also, certainly, when you, when you use comics in... In a therapeutic manner, you know, and none of us, I'm going to make an assumption here, none of us are therapists. So sometimes what comes out and you see that this is reflecting a difficulty that may be beyond our ability is then what do you do? You know, what do you do with that, that awareness? You know, do you report it? Do you ask the artist to seek help or do you just observe and, and, and sort of support them expressing it through the art and see if that in and of, in and of itself is useful? But yes, it's, it's quite a challenge, but that's, that's great. Now, how long have you been doing workshops and things here, either one of you? Um, I've actually not been teaching here, but I've used comics as a teaching method at university. So, what, uh, what university? Uh, at Helsinki University. Um, I was teaching in a master's oh, program oh. called Culture and Communication, a special cor course about uh, ideology and the public sphere. Well, that sounds very vague. <laughs> so I took the opportunity to, to have an assignment where the students, who were all master students, were actually uh, supposed to draw a four-panel comic using any any kind of method. They could use collage even if they were not confident in their drawing mm -hmm. abilities. And to convey a message and try to convince the reader, the assumed audience. So that was really interesting because it forced the master students to think outside the box and not use, well, uh, text but images mm -hmm. and uh, perhaps get a view of... Because sometimes people treat images okay. as something magic you need talent to create images, and then it's almost real, so people react to propaganda images very strongly and emotionally. Mm. But what happens when you actually experience creating images yourself and uh, informing or manipulating your audience? I think that gives some power to, uh, to people to see that this is actually also uh, a, a way of conveying ideas. You have to take it with a grain of salt. I think it also makes people aware of the fact, you use the word manipulation. Um, I teach screenwriting at the New York Film Academy, and I often tell my students, we manipulate people. You know, how you put together a story, you want certain reactions to come at certain times from your audience. So you are, in effect, manipulating them. You don't have to see it as a bad thing, unless it depends on the kind of film or stuff that you're doing. But ultimately, yes, you're trying to elicit specific reactions at specific times. And that means you're manipulating. And I think when people become more aware of the fact that that can be done, it also makes them a little bit more watchful in terms of the material that they're ingesting. Mm. So you, you had said that um, some of these programs are beyond this, this uh, particular location. Where are they? Yes, yeah, so um, teaching courses and workshops has been a part of the Comic Center's mission for all of the decade of its existence. And... The goal has been actually pretty ambitious to have 
a uh, a corpus of, of teaching that that uh, matches the requirements of art education in Finland, and and the people who work here at Comic Center design the coursework, and we have. Uh, uh, teachers who are hired to do the teaching at schools, at libraries, and and activity centers, uh, not only in the Helsinki metropolitan area but in other cities in Finland. But but the the actual mission of using uh, comics as a tool of education goes back further than the comic center. The the society has, for example, uh, collaborated with uh, the World Comics Initiative, which is all about going to developing countries and and giving people the tools to tell stories about their own lives mm. through comics. Which which when when you realize. The, the potential of the medium it's it's much easier to approach than trying to express yourself through prose uh, in in principle everyone can draw it's all about just tearing down those those inhibitions about about uh, having to uh, possess a certain level of proficiency in drawing. Yeah. You know, drawing like so and so. Well, so and so has been drawing for thirty-five years. You know, so <laughs> there, there's a, there's something to be said for practice. Um, you know, it's, it's it's interesting you mentioned that because some years ago I was introduced to an exhibit at the Harlem Studio, the Studio Museum of Harlem, rather in uh, New York City, and it was African comics. So it was comics actually produced by African artists in Africa. And whereas I was aware that they existed, what I, I found interesting was how that exhibit came to the Studio Museum. It did not come through uh, a Harlem to Africa connection or a black person to black person connection. It came about through an organization in Italy looking for a medium through which they could show Italians the African experience because a lot of Africans were migrating to Italy and there was a lot of shall we say, rough edges, you know, the, the cultures were clashing in, in certain ways in certain localities, and they were looking for something they could use to sort of become the bridge, uh, you know, establish some sort of uh, communication. And in f going to Africa, I think they initially went there thinking they would find it in the music or whatever, and they found that these comics were being made all over Africa, but there was no central publishers, no central distribution center. And so they started bringing these back and presenting them to the Italian people and then eventually bringing some of the artists over. And that established, again, some sort of a platform for dialogue to solve some of the social problems they were dealing with. But then that also made them aware that this was an exhibit that should travel and, and be seen by others. Uh, there's a longer story behind that, but I think that speaks to what you're talking about. Uh, I know I, in growing up, I read a lot of... French comics and graphic novels before I discovered um, some of the Italians and some of the others and and I was exposed to Hershey's Adventures of Ten Ten, both as an animated show because it existed back in the 60s and then the books and then that led me to Asterix you know the Gaul and then I started to see not a similarity in style because you're talking also about silent proficiency not a similarity in style in the art or but Mexican comics, because I had a lot of Hispanic friends, mm -hmm. and so they had, their families, their fathers, mothers had these Mexican or Spanish comics, and I'm looking and I'm going, wow, you know, you got comics here, and comics in America, this, so I got very excited about that, and that was another way of, of my friends who were into comics when we were 13 and 12, 
realizing that the world was bigger than our, our neighborhood, our community, you know, or our small circle of friends. So that's, you know, I think comics are absolutely what you're saying. It's, it's an open door to communication and to uh, expressing for oneself, but also helping others get some sense of who you are, where you're coming from. And again, where are those similarities? Because these days they seem to be talking about differences more than anything else. Um, so now both of you are artists, and, and I would love to get a little bit more insight into that. So again, shifting, uh, will you tell me a little something about your, your self you know, as an artist. Yeah, well, I've been drawing comics most of my life, so I'm essentially self-taught. But uh, since I started studying history, um, comics became an outlet for the kind of stories I could not tell as a researcher. So I've been in, become more and more interested in historical topics, uh, including, um, well, one of the recent stories I made for an anthology about Finnish civil war in 1918 mm. uh, was based on a, a, an actual narrative of a woman who participated in the civil war, and, and she was uh, uh, a soldier. So this was really difficult to do, how to express a story in comics where I did not believe that everything she described had actually happened. <laughs> but I would, I still wanted to do her story justice because mm -hmm. it was not my place to be the historian who... Or to rewrite her. history, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, possible history. So her experiences had to be, be appreciated even though... And that's where the tone comic medium is so valuable because you can make the reader aware of the subjectivity, that this is this person's... Uh, personal experience, what her memories, and not perhaps the uh, artist's uh, ideas. Mm -hmm. So you can have work with different levels in the comic storytelling. Uh, you you yeah. said you were, you're self-taught. I, I do want to come back to what you were talking about in a moment, but you said you were self-taught. So uh, what medium, what do you find uh, you use most in order to do your comics? Uh, do you work in color, black and white, pen, pen, pencil? Let's try it again. Pen, pencil, paint. You know. Yeah, I think I'm pretty old-fashioned in the old adventure comics tradition. I always liked pen, ink, black and white, strong shadows, mm. that sort of thing, and uh, brush, brush work. That's oh. really something I want to yeah. develop further. So, for example, Will Eisner was oh. a great discovery. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I met him. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. great man. Great yeah. man. Yeah. yeah. It's funny because he's he, a lot of us in the industry in the, in the states treat him like he was you know, everybody's great grandfather. You know, it's like, just so many different artists of so many different backgrounds and styles who will refer to Will Eisner's work, either his illustrative work or specifically his work with the, with the spirit or his graphic novels like you know, Contract with God, where that's a you know a, a, has nothing to do with superheroes. It has to do with a story about the human existence. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think there's something about that man that's left his mark, like Jack Kirby's left his mark, that seems to transcend generations and, and as I said, art styles. So, all right, so you, you work in, in certain medium that you're, you favor, and do you have any material out already that you've published or self-published or... 
Yeah, I have a self-published adventure story, both online and printed, uh, called Golden Bird. It's an adventure story. Golden Bird? Bird. Oh, bird. 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 Yeah. Okay. <laughs> chirp, chirp. Okay. Yeah. Golden Bird. Yes. Yeah. So it's set in the early 20s in the Mediterranean with a clash between different cultures and ideologies. So that's more like a, I'm playing around with history. It's what, not what, so what, 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 I'm going to get copies or something out later. <laughs> so, folks, there'll be some sort of you know sample of it online. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you, my good sir. Yeah, um, so my background is very much in the American mainstream comics fandom. So uh, I've been a comics collector for most of my life. And uh, in the early 2000s, I think it was 2002, I started uh, translating the Finnish Spider-Man or Hamakimies magazine. It's easy so, for you to say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've, so I've been translating that uh, ever since. Uh, the the sort of Finnish language superhero market has dwindled all the time, and right now it's the only monthly uh, superhero magazine on the newsstands. But uh, I'd, I'd like to think it's still going strong. But but that is that is the genre of comics that I felt uh, was closest to my heart. I've, I've uh, obviously, like most Finns, I've read Donald Duck and Asterix and Lucky Loop when I was a kid, and and um, I've uh, uh, read manga and and other comics from Europe and so on. But I uh, I keep coming back to the American superhero, and uh, I have also published a uh, album of comics myself. Uh, it was written by a friend of mine, Otto Sinisalo, a, a former chairman of the Comic Society, and uh, that is very much a sort of future dystopia uh, set in the 30th, 30th century, uh, possible future of mankind, and, and uh, I, I think it is, is an expression of, of the sort of shared uh, uh, comics influences of, of, of mine and Otto's, so, so there's very much Warren Ellis and, and Brian Hitch there. And, oh. uh, um, that, so that, that was one album, it's, it's coming up on seven years ago, I've been working on the sequel all this time and I, I hope to actually uh, get ink to paper some someday this year, and and my preferred medium is is also pen and ink and brush. The the brush is is a uh, demanding tool, but I I hope to master it it someday. And and uh, I would say Joe Kubert is my my personal hero mm. in in terms of brush work. I I I, I hope to have half as much uh, skill with the brush someday. Well, I will tell Adam you said that. You know, uh, yeah. The Kubert School, um, there's a number of people I know who either graduated from there or have spoken there. And my, a friend of mine who's an artist I work with on Archie Comics, uh, Fernando Varese, teaches there and has for about I don't know, 15, 16 years. You know, he was a student there himself. So, yeah, there's a lot of the Kubert influence out there in the world, you know, either, either because they love his work or they've been taught at his school, you know. You had, you had said um, earlier about um, the, the, whether or not the women's uh, memoirs were mm. exaggerated in some way, shape, or form. And it's funny, because on the ship that I'm traveling on, there was a, a presentation done by, and I do not remember the woman's first name, 
J.J. Abrams' father, <clears throat> so the filmmaker's father, was on the ship doing a presentation. Yes, he's still there. And he did it on fact or fiction. He showed scenes from specific movies like Dunkirk and uh, oh, Not a Beautiful Mind, but another film that's similar to that. And what he was saying, he then would talk to the audience and say, okay, here's a certain scene. Oh, well, uh, Ch Churchill, Winston Churchill. Mm -hmm. They'll say, here's a specific scene, fact or fiction. Do you think this really happened or do you think the movie happened? And, you know, audience would vote. And what he explained was, and, and as storytellers we know this, but again, to, to the lay audience, you know, Hollywood does take liberties. Hollywood film industry, storytellers do take liberties at times. None of us were with John Adams or any of the founding fathers of America, and yet you can write something like 1776 or, you know, John Adams. You can do a biopic about these people. And how do you know what they said? So at a certain point, you're going to do a certain amount of research, and then you're going to go, okay, I believe this is how it probably went. But then there are times when you do take even greater poetic license for the sake of drama, you know, because you are not doing a documentary, you're doing a piece of entertainment, you know, and it's meant to entertain, it's meant to compel. So sometimes, yeah, they will add scenes. So like there, were, there were scenes, uh, I think it was in Dunkirk, there's a scene that was added where the, the Allies are actually being fired upon by German soldiers in this particular town that they're entering. And in actuality, the Germans had vacated that property weeks before the soldiers ever got there. So they said, you know, it's but it was, it was a good film. It's a great scene. You know, it's great. It needed that, right? So, I, you know, it's possible that the woman whose, whose memoirs you were using as a reference might have made herself or someone else seem a little bit bigger than life. Or it's also possible that it happened but you know you have no way of knowing so so forth you so you have to make that call mm -hmm. and I, I think sometimes it really is about understanding or, or determining how genuine you want to be you know if you if you indicate that something is absolutely true to fact then you better make sure it's true to fact but if you're doing a piece of fiction based on then yeah I mean we should all expect that there are gonna be some liberties taken for again visual or dramatic effect or appeal or comedic appeal, depending on what you're going for. Greetings, everybody. It's Alex Simmons coming to you from Europe, actually, uh, with this, uh, what would you call this, uh, this exciting, impromptu, tell-the-damn-story episode. Unfortunately, Chris is not here with me in Europe. He's back in the United States holding down the fort. And Tim Fielder, who you hear about, was one of the co-creators of Tell the Damn Story, is out there either in New York working on a major illustrations project, or might even be traveling through the United States right now on another speaking tour. So, so I'm here in Europe, and I had a chance to go to the Helsinki Comic Center and speak with some of the members and really get a look at what is uh, coming to be, in my mind and my experience, a fairly exciting movement of comic centers, cultural centers, showing up in different cities and different countries. So, here we are. Uh, this is already pre-recorded. I'm just doing this intro right now to let you know Chris is not going to be here for this one, and I miss him, I miss him, I miss him, but we'll see how that goes. Uh, but let me get started on at least the first half of this interview with members of the Helsinki Comic Center here in Helsinki, Finland. Okay, um, I am recording here, and the you're going to tell me the name of the place again. What was it, the name of this center? The Comic Center of Helsinki. Yes, and it's called the Comic Center of Helsinki because I'm in Helsinki, Finland, yeah, which is not something that happens very often, so I figured let me take advantage of the fact. I'm here with two wonderful people who were nice enough to meet me in um, the center of town and bring me here. Uh, the first is? 
Aynur Elmgren. I'm a historian and comic artist. Uh-huh. And Rami Rautkorpi. I'm a comics translator and comics artist. All right. So um, these two wonderful people, as I said, met me here. And they brought me to the Comic Center. Uh, and this was arranged through uh, a friend of mine named Anna, who's a comic artist in Moscow. And Anna knows people here. And that's just to say that the comic world is much larger than most of you think. It is truly global and not just because DC sells in India. So um, what I wanted to do while I'm here is, A, learn a bit more about this comic center, you know, and how it came about and what you think would be interesting to share about it. And then I want to learn a little bit more about you guys. And as I've said a couple of times, you can also ask me questions. You know, please, let's keep this uh, sort of an exchange, you know, while I'm here. So who wants to start first? Tell me something about the comic center. Well, the comic center is really the... Uh physical manifestation of the Comic Society of Finland, which has been operating for decades uh, and uh, has organized the annual Helsinki Comics Festival, but didn't really have a physical headquarters that people could visit until 10 years ago. It was established in 2008, the original uh, Comic Center, in a location uh, very near to where it is now, but it has moved two times since. And now we're here here in Kallio, Helsinki. And you said the, the fin, Finland Comics Festival, how, you said decades, about how long? I mean, are we talking three decades, four, five? Four, four decades. Four, so say. 40 years. Yeah. Wow, okay, that, that is something. And, and what is your position here with the Comic Center? I'm the vice chair of the board of the Comic Society, so I'm one of the people who supervise and, and make decisions on a high level. And here at the Comic Center, we have uh, the salaried employees who take care of the day-to-day -day business. Okay, and just to get a little balance here, mm -hmm. what else happens here at the center? Obviously, there's, there are comics, but what else goes on here? There are workshops, there are courses organized both for adults and children and in different topics like one course which is going to be organized soon is about comics journalism. So that's an interesting topic, how to use comics as a journalistic medium. So you mean in the case of either uh, uh, personal biographies uh, or, or even like, what was it, I believe the graphic novel The Photographer? which is, uh, um, is fiction and non-fiction material about a photographer in the uh, Middle East. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, something of that sort, uh, documentary comics, mm -hmm. uh, which can express, uh, uh, well, for example, traumatic events in a different way than, than film or mm -hmm. other types of documentation. So it's, it's a challenge, of course. How do you manage that without distorting and... Uh, yeah. yeah, without stereotyping. I've, I've done that for years in terms of work with uh, young people in distressed situations. Uh, so aside from underserved communities that I've worked with and done comics workshops and certain schools that work with children sort of in their last opportunities at school or educational system, I've also gone into incarceration facilities for teenagers and worked with them there. And yes, it is a different challenge because there's already a certain amount of, of resistance, either due to the extreme hardships they've endured or to a persona that they've taken on that they don't want to shed in front of their peers. Mm -hmm. And sometimes just because, you know, 
they don't believe in it. They don't believe in themselves. They don't believe in anything other than what they know or what they've known up to that point. So yes, it, it is a challenge, and and also certainly when you when you use comics in in a therapeutic manner, you know, and none of us, I'm going to make an assumption here, none of us are therapists. So sometimes what comes out and you see that this is reflecting a difficulty that may be beyond our ability is then what do you do? You know, what do you do with that, that awareness? You know, do you report it? Do you ask the artist to seek help? Or do you just observe and, and, and sort of support them expressing it through the art and see if that in and of, in and of itself is useful? But yes, it's, it's quite a challenge, but that's, that's great. Now, how long have you been doing workshops and things here, either one of you? Um, I've actually not been teaching here, but I've used comics as a teaching method at university. So, what, uh, what university? Uh, at Helsinki University. Um, I was teaching in a master's oh, program cool. called Culture and Communication, a special cor course about uh, ideology and the public sphere. Well, that sounds very vague. <laughs> so I took the opportunity to, to have an assignment where the students, who were all master's students, were actually uh, supposed to draw a four-panel comic using any any kind of method. They could use collage even if they were not confident in their drawing mm -hmm. abilities. And to convey a message and try to convince the reader, the assumed audience. So that was really interesting because it forced the master students to think outside the box and not use, well, uh, text but images mm -hmm. and uh, perhaps get a view of... Because sometimes people treat images okay. as something magic you need talent to create images, and then it's almost real, so people react to propaganda images very strongly and emotionally. Mm. But what happens when you actually experience creating images yourself and uh, informing or manipulating your audience? I think that gives some power to, uh, to people to see that this is actually also uh, a, a way of conveying ideas. You have to take it with a grain of salt. I think it also makes people aware of the fact, you use the word manipulation. Um, I teach screenwriting at the New York Film Academy and I often tell my students, we manipulate people. You know, how you put together a story, you want certain reactions to come at certain times from your audience. So you are in effect manipulating them. You don't have to see it as a bad thing, unless it depends on the kind of film or stuff that you're doing. But ultimately, yes, you're trying to elicit specific reactions at specific times. And that means you're manipulating. And I think when people become more aware of the fact that that can be done, it also makes them a little bit more watchful in terms of the material that they're ingesting. So you, you had said that um, some of these programs are beyond this, this uh, particular location. Where are they? Yeah, so um, teaching courses and workshops has been a part of the Comic Center's mission for all of the decade of its existence. And the goal has been actually pretty ambitious to have a, uh, a corpus of, of teaching that, that uh, matches the requirements of art education in Finland. And, and the people who work here at Comic Center design the coursework, and we have uh, uh, teachers who are hired to do the teaching at schools, at libraries, and, and activity centers. Uh, not only in the Helsinki metropolitan area, but in other cities in Finland. But, but the, the actual mission of using uh, comics as a tool of education goes back further than the Comic Center. The, the society has 
for example, uh, collaborated with uh, the World Comics Initiative, which is all about going to developing countries and and giving people the tools to tell stories about their own lives mm. through comics. Which which when when you realize the the potential of the medium, it's it's much easier to approach than trying to express yourself through prose. Uh, in in principle, everyone can draw. It's all about just tearing down those those inhibitions about about uh, having to uh, possess a certain level of proficiency in drawing. Yeah. You know, drawing like so and so. Well, so and so has been drawing for thirty five years. You know, so <laughs> there, there's a, there's something to be said for practice. Um, you know, it's, it's it's interesting you mentioned that because some years ago I was introduced to an exhibit at the Harlem Studio, the Studio Museum of Harlem, rather, in uh, New York City, and it was African comics. So it was comics actually produced by African artists in Africa. And whereas I was aware that they existed, what I, I found interesting was how that exhibit came to the Studio Museum. It did not come through uh, a Harlem to Africa connection or a black person to black person connection. It came about through an organization in Italy looking for a medium through which they could show Italians the African experience because a lot of Africans were migrating to Italy and there was a lot of, shall we say, rough edges. You know, the, the cultures were clashing in, in certain ways in certain localities. And they were looking for something they could use to sort of become the bridge, uh, you know, establish some sort of uh, communication. And in f going to Africa, I think they initially went there thinking they would find it in the music or whatever, and they found that these comics were being made all over Africa, but there was no central publishers, no central distribution center. And so they started bringing these back and presenting them to the Italian people, and then eventually bringing some of the artists over. And that established, again, some sort of a platform for dialogue to solve some of the social problems they were dealing with. But then that also made them aware that this was an exhibit that should travel and, and be seen by others. Uh, there's a longer story behind that, but I think that speaks to what you're talking about. Uh, I know I, in growing up, I read a lot of French comics and graphic novels before I discovered um, some of the Italians and some of the others. And, and I was exposed to Hershey's Adventures of Tintin, both as an animated show, because it existed back in the 60s, and then the books, and then that led me to Asterix, you know, the Gaul, and then I started to see not a similarity in style, because you were talking also about style and proficiency, not a similarity in style in the art, but Mexican comics, because I had a lot of Hispanic friends, mm -hmm. and so they had, their families, their fathers, mothers had these Mexican or Spanish comics, and I'm looking and I'm going, wow, you know, you got comics here, and comics in America, this. so I got very excited about that, and that was another way of of my friends who were into comics when we were 13 and 12, realizing that the world was bigger than our, our neighborhood, our community, you know, or our small circle of friends. So that's, you know, I think comics are absolutely what you're saying. It's, it's an open door to communication and to uh, expressing for oneself, but also helping others get some sense of who you are, where you're coming from. And again, where are those similarities? Because these days, they seem to be talking about differences more than anything else. Um, so now, both of you are artists, and, and I would love to get a little bit more insight into that. So again, shifting, uh, will you tell me a little something about your, your 
self, you know, as an artist? Yeah, well, I've been drawing comics most of my life, so I'm essentially self-taught. But uh, since I started studying history, um, comics became an outlet for the kind of stories I could not tell as a researcher. So I've been in, become more and more interested in historical topics, uh, including... Um, well, one of the recent stories I made for an anthology about Finnish civil war in 1918 mm. uh, was based on a, a, an actual narrative of a woman who participated in the civil war, and, and she was uh, uh, a soldier. So uh, this was really difficult to do, how to express a story in comics where I did not believe that everything she described had actually happened. <laughs> but I would, I still wanted to do her story justice because mm -hmm. it was not my place to be the historian who... Or to rewrite history, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, possible history. So her experiences had to be, be appreciated even though... And that's where the tone comic medium is so valuable because you can make the reader aware of the subjectivity, that this is this person's... Uh, personal experience, what her memories, and not perhaps the uh, artist's uh, ideas. Mm -hmm. So you can have work with different levels in the comic storytelling. Uh, you you yeah. said you're you're self-taught. I, I do want to come back to what you were talking about in a moment, but you said you were self-taught. So uh, what medium? What do you find uh, you use most in order to do your comics? Uh, do you work in color, black and white, pen, pen, pencil? Let's try it again. Pen, pencil, paint. You know. Yeah, I think I'm pretty old-fashioned in the old adventure comics tradition. I always liked pen, ink, black and white, strong shadows, mm. that sort of thing, and uh, brush, brush work. That's oh. really something I want to yeah. develop further. So, for example, Will Eisner was oh. a great discovery. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, I met him. Yeah. Yes, yeah. great man. Great yeah. man. Yeah. yeah. It's funny because he's he, a lot of us in the industry and in, in the states treat him like he was you know, everybody's great grandfather. You know, it's like, just so many different artists of so many different backgrounds and styles who will refer to Will Eisner's work, either his illustrative work or specifically his work with the, with the spirit or his graphic novels like you know, Contract with God, where that's a you know a, a, has nothing to do with superheroes. It has to do with a story about the human existence. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think there's something about that man that's left his mark, like Jack Kirby's left his mark, that seems to transcend generations and, and as I said, art styles. So, all right, so you, you work in, in certain medium that you're, you favor, and do you have any material out already that you've published or self-published or... Yeah, I have a self-published adventure story, both online and printed, uh, called Golden Bird. It's an adventure story. Golden Bird? Bird. Oh, bird. 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 Yeah. Okay. <laughs> chirp, chirp. Okay. Yeah. Golden Bird. Yes. Yeah. So it's set in the early 20s in the Mediterranean with a clash between different cultures and ideologies. So that's more like a, I'm playing around with history. It's not we'll, so... We'll, we'll, I'm going to get copies or something out later. <laughs> yeah. So folks, there'll be some sort of, you know, sample of it online. Yeah. 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 And you, my good sir. Yeah, um, so my background is very much in the American mainstream comics fandom. So uh, I've been a comics collector for most of my life. And uh, in the early 2000s, I think it was 2002, I started uh, translating the Finnish Spider-Man or Hamakimies magazine. It's easy so, for you to say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
I've, so I've been translating that uh, ever since. Uh, the the sort of Finnish language superhero market has dwindled all the time, and right now it's the only monthly uh, superhero magazine on the newsstands. But uh, I'd, I'd like to think it's still going strong. But but that is that is the genre of comics that I felt uh, was closest to my heart. I've I've uh, obviously like most Finns. I've read Donald Duck and Asterix and Lucky Loop when I was a kid, and and um, I've uh, uh, read manga and and other comics from Europe and so on. But I uh, I keep coming back to the American superhero, and uh, I have also published a uh, album of comics myself. Uh, it was written by a friend of mine, Otto Sinisalo, a, a former chairman of the Comic Society, and uh, that is very much a sort of future dystopia uh, set in the 30th, 30th century uh, possible future of mankind, and, and uh, I, I think it is, is an expression of, of the sort of shared uh, uh, comics influences of, of, of mine and Otto's, so, so there's very much Warren Ellis and, and Brian Hitch there. Oh. And, uh, um, that, so that, that was one album, it's, it's coming up on seven years ago, I've been working on the sequel all this time and I, I hope to actually uh, get ink to paper some someday this year, and and my preferred medium is is also pen and ink and brush. The the brush is is a uh, demanding tool, but I I hope to master it it someday. And and uh, I would say Joe Kubert is my my personal hero mm. in in terms of brush work. I I I, I hope to have half as much uh, skill with the brush someday. Well, I will tell Adam you said that. You know, uh, yeah. The Kubert School, um, there's a number of people I know who either graduated from there or have spoken there. And a friend of mine who's an artist I work with on Archie Comics, uh, Fernando Varese, teaches there and has for about I don't know, 15, 16 years. You know, he was a student there himself. So, yeah, there's a lot of the Kubert influence out there in the world, you know, either, either because they love his work or they've been taught at his school, you know. You had, you had said um, earlier about um, the, the, whether or not the women's uh, memoirs were mm. exaggerated in some way, shape, or form. And it's funny, because on the ship that I'm traveling on, there was a, a presentation done by, and I do not remember the gentleman's first name, J.J. Abrams' father. <clears throat> so the filmmaker's father was on the ship doing a presentation. Yes, he's still there. And he did it on fact or fiction. He showed scenes from specific movies like Dunkirk and uh, oh, Not a Beautiful Mind, but another film that's similar to that. And what he was saying, he then would talk to the audience and say, okay, here's a certain scene. Oh, well, uh, Ch Churchill, Winston Churchill. Mm -hmm. They'll say, here's a specific scene, fact or fiction. Do you think this really happened or do you think the movie happened? And, you know, audience would vote. And what he explained was, and, and as storytellers we know this, but again, to, to the lay audience, you know, Hollywood does take liberties. Hollywood film industry, storytellers do take liberties at times. None of us were with John Adams or any of the founding fathers of America, and yet you can write something like 1776 or, you know, John Adams. You can do a biopic about these people. And how do you know what they said? So at a certain point, you're going to do a certain amount of research, and then you're going to go, okay, I believe this is how it probably went. 
But then there are times when you do take even greater poetic license for the sake of drama, you know, because you are not doing a documentary, you are doing a piece of entertainment, you know, and it's meant to entertain, it's meant to compel. So sometimes, yeah, they will add scenes. So like there were there were scenes, and uh, I think it was in Dunkirk. There's a scene that was added, where the the Allies are actually being fired upon by German soldiers in this particular town that they're entering, and in actuality, the Germans had vacated that property weeks before the soldiers ever got there. So they said, you know, it's tr- but it was it was a good film. It's a great scene. You know, it's great. It needed that, right? So I, you know, it's possible that the woman whose whose memoirs you were using as a reference mm-hmm. might have made herself or someone else seem a little bit bigger than life, or it's also possible that it happened, but you know, you have no way of knowing so so forth, so you have to make that call. Mm-hmm. And I, I think sometimes it really is about understanding or, or determining how genuine you want to be. You know, if you, if you indicate that something is absolutely true to fact, then you better make sure it's true to fact. But if you're doing a piece of fiction based on then, yeah, I mean, we should all expect that there are going to be some liberties taken for, again, visual or dramatic effect or appeal or comedic appeal, depending on what you're going for. <laughs>